Would you pray with me as we dive into God's word? Good and gracious God, we thank you for um, this gift of your word. We thank you for your spirit um, that keeps this word alive in our hearts, and we thank you for your son who came and walked on earth so that we may have eternal life. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear from you this morning, God. Amen. Well, as you know, we were in the Boundary Waters recently, and so, of course, I'm preaching. We just were in the Boundary Waters. We're going to get some Boundary Water stories. Does that sound good? Um, I did not run this by any of the students that were on the trip, so only one of you is being mentioned by name, and I'm sure you're going to be fine. Um, so as Trisha was saying, portages are very difficult, okay? And for those of us that don't know about what a portage is, the portage is basically the part between um, the lakes. So you are on a lake, and you're paddling, and you get to a portage, you get out of the lake, and you take everything that's with you, and you walk a path through the wilderness to get to the next lake, Okay, so that's what a portage is. And when you're portaging and you have packs, sometimes you are carrying the pack on your back or your front. Um, and if you have a canoe, which you do because it's the boundary waters and there's no other way to go through the boundary waters, um, you take the canoe and you put it above your head. So there's like a yoke and you set the like yoke pads on your shoulders and you carry a canoe through this path, through the wilderness from lake to lake. And a canoe requires mostly two people to get it up there. But once it's up there, it's just you and the wilderness and a canoe and a path. Okay, so that's what we're doing when we're talking about portaging. So we got up to AC two Mondays ago and immediately we went straight into like orientation mode, okay? So we broke into our two groups. We had two groups of students, a boys group and a girls group. Our girls group had five students, myself as the leader, and then a guide from AC. And then the boys group had two male students, two male leaders, and a guide from AC. So you get broken up and you do all of the orientation. You learn about how to put the canoe above your head. You learn about how to pack your bag. You learn about what it means to leave no trace. And at some point, you sit down with your guide and you go through what your route is um, for the trip. And so we sit down with our guide. Her name's Emma. She puts the map in front of us, and she's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go in here. We're going to do some stuff. Um, and then we have, on the first day, we have two options. We can go this one little portage, and then we could go this long portage, or we could go all of these little tiny portages around the long portage in order to um, go around like this really long portage. But if we did the little ones, it's going to add up to more than the long portage. So I would suggest we do the long one. So the girls were like, okay, sure, yeah, like let's do that. Okay, so we spend the night at camp. The next morning we get up, breakfast, dishes, get in the vans, we're all super pumped, like it's going to be the best trip of our lives, right? We get in the water, we start canoeing, we get to the first portage. Now, portages are measured in what's called a rod. The rod is the, basically the length of a canoe, which is 16.5 feet, okay? So, rod, like, portages can be anywhere from, like, 10 rods to, like, there was one that I saw on the map that's, like, 500 and something rods. Like, they're a lot of varying distances. And then the other thing is that, remember, we're going through the wilderness, and the Boundary Waters is like untouched, protected land. 
So there's not like really nice paths and the chances that the path has actually had a tree fall down over it or that it's muddy, pretty high, okay? So we get to the first portage. This is the first time we have tried this, okay? Because when we got to the first part to put the stuff in, we just like one by one carried all of our stuff down. Um, when we got to the first portage, it was like, okay, so there are seven of us. We have three canoes, four personal packs with all of our stuff in it, one equipment pack, which has all of our tents and dishes and other things like that. And then we have a food pack and then we have a stove pack. That's how much stuff we had. And then we had eight oars, okay? So we're, some people are having to double pack, some people are having to carry canoes. So we have three canoe carriers, someone carrying the E-pack, which is this giant um, blue pack that I don't actually know how much it weighed, but it f definitely felt like it weighed 100 pounds. I don't know if that's real or not, but I'm gonna go with 100. Um, and then the food pack, which on day one is full of food for four days, um, and then our double packs. And when we talk about double packs, okay, you put one pack on your back, and these are like Duluth packs, so they're like that big, right? Now, you're probably thinking, Alicia, why don't you just show us pictures of this? I did not take a camera into the Boundary Waters, so we have no pictures, but we did it, I promise. So we have the Duluth packs. I promise, we totally did it. So you put it on your back, and then you have your second one that you're gonna double pack with, and you can choose to either put that over your front or the other way you could do it is you can grab it and flip it over your head and carry it on top of the other pack on your shoulders and walk through the wilderness. Those are your two options. But here's the thing, two people in our group had to double pack every time. Two people in our group had to carry the E-pack the e and the food pack, and three people in our group had to carry canoes. That's all there was to it. Like in order to get from point A to point B, you gotta do it. So we get to point A, first one. Emma is like, okay, so this is our first portage. It's about 120 rods. Well, I looked it up again yesterday. It's 142 rods was our first one. 142 rods, I did the math, friends, is about 0.4 miles, okay? Um, some of you could probably do that math in your brain, but I cannot. I see Dennis nodding his head. Yeah, I can't, so I wrote it down. Um, so about 0.4 miles, okay? So here we go, first time. Who's taking the canoes? Who's taking the packs? We get the packs on, we go through. I don't know how long that first one took, but we got to the end and we put all our stuff down and we were like, oh my gosh, like what just happened? Like I just carried all of this stuff all this way and it was not pleasant, friends. It was not fun, okay? And so all of that energy that we had had just felt like it immediately went away, right? So then, we get back in the boats, we're paddling a little bit, it's totally fine, we did it. We get to our second portage, which is that long portage that I was telling you about, where we could either go one long portage or a bunch of little ones, that means getting in and out of the boat like 100 times. So we do the, the long one, which is called the Tusk, and it is 428 rods long, which is about 1.3 miles. Okay, so we just barely made it through 142 rods and we're getting in to do the, this next one. And so Emma, as we're getting up, she's prepping us um, and Emma's like, okay, we're gonna be smart about this. We're gonna pair up, make sure that whoever you're with, like you guys are walking together, you're making it through, um, one of you will have a canoe, one of you will have all of this stuff and you just have to make sure, take breaks, like she's pumping us, she's giving us like, here are some things that you can do. Um, that portage, took us an hour and a half, 
okay? But we did it. And I remember, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I remember I have a friend who three years ago did that this same trip and she is a female youth pastor and she was telling me that when she did that portage that she um, had to run back and forth to help her girls make it through the portage and there were literal moments where she had to pry her students hands off of trees to say you've got to keep going we have no other option <laughs> okay and let's just be honest, like that was really hard. And then we get in the boats and we go a little further and guess what? There's another portage, okay? So we get to the next portage, right? Put some canoes on, do some stuff. We go through the next portage. The next ones, the next two were a little bit shorter. So it was like 50 and 60 rods, the last two, which is still a significant distance, right? So we make it through. On one of those other portages, um, it had rained the night before and, uh, we learned a very valuable lesson. That mud sometimes appears as though it is solid and sometimes you sink into it. Kaylee and I learned that lesson the hard way. Both of us were carrying a canoe when it happened um, and we sank knee deep into some mud. Kaylee kept the canoe above her head. I did not. And my favorite story of the trip is that Kaylee, in all of her greatness, like sinks into the mud and goes, um, bridge? And somebody has to drop all their bags and run over to give her a bridge so that she can pull her full leg out of the mud. So that's the one story where I named her. I thought she'd be fine with it. We still cool? All right. So that's the kind of things that happened on our first day in the boundary waters, okay? So we finally get to the campsite, it's like four o'clock. We set up all the tents, we are tired, we are dirty, we are probably super annoyed, not so much with each other, but just like with everything that we've done that day. And Emma and I like lock eye contact as the two leaders on the trip and we're like, I think we need some time with Jesus. So we like mandatory quiet time. I was like, all of you take your Bibles and your journals, go find a spot, don't be near anybody and just like take some time, which now I can admit was more for me than for them. <laughs> so I sit down and I open my journal and I wrote like four pages in my journal because I just needed to like get all of the words out that I was feeling. Um, and then because, you know, I'm a pastor that thinks ahead in my life, I remembered that I was preaching this week. And so I pulled out my Bible because I really couldn't think of anything else. And I read these words sitting on the shore, looking out over a beautiful lake after the day that I had just had. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest value, valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. 
And in those moments, as I sat on the shore and I looked over the water after the day that I had just had, these words just kind of washed over me. And I appreciated them in a brand new way. I've heard these words hundreds of times. I have sang them, I have read them, I have memorized them. I know these words. But for the first time that night, I really felt like I understood what it meant to be led beside still waters, to be guided along paths that were right. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we see this scripture in a new way. We're going to dive in, we're going to talk about what it means, and we're going to think through what does it mean to really pray this psalm, to really pray that God is our shepherd and that we shall not want. So let's dive in. This psalm is attributed to David, who we knew, um, we know as the king of Israel uh, back in the Old Testament. His story is found um, throughout the Old Testament, but in this uh, psalm, uh, we know that, that David wrote it and that he was a king, but before he was a king, he was anointed to be the next king when he was still a shepherd when he was still someone who was tending sheep in the fields. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. So when David starts this psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He speaks from experience of what it means to take care of sheep. He speaks from knowing what it means to guide the sheep and to take care of them in the midst of evil and danger. When he's saying, I shall not want, it doesn't mean that Uh, he doesn't want for things. It means that he'll never be in want. He knows that a shepherd's job is to take care of their sheep, to make sure their sheep eat, to make sure their sheep drink water, to guide them, to protect them, so that the sheep doesn't really have to do anything else. Because let's be honest, sheep are not the smartest animals. And when we as humans are compared to sheep, it's not always like the nicest comparison. Sheep don't really have a lot of um, like smarts. (laughs) They uh, need to be led. They need to be corralled. They need to be given food, given water. And so a shepherd is the person who makes sure that they get what they need and that they're not in want. So he keeps going on what it means to be providing for the sheep when he talks about the Lord. So he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. This is the provision that God is granting David. It means that he is getting rest He's getting refreshment, and he's getting direction. Each of these things are being provided for the sheep, and the one that makes it happen, when we think about these verses, we have to remember that it's not the sheep is, is resting. The sheep is not the subject. The subject is the Lord. The Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. The sheep aren't the ones that are the agents in this story. It is the shepherd. And when David calls the Lord his shepherd, he is saying that God is the one that creates this space for me to find rest, 
and refreshment and direction. And who knows this better than David? Do we remember the beginning of David's story? It's my favorite one to preach on when I preach at camp. Um, Because in the story of David, at the beginning, Samuel is looking for the next king of Israel. God has rejected Saul. He has sent Samuel to go anoint the new king. Saul is still king. But Samuel is anointing the next person to be king because Saul proved that he was not worth it. So he sends Samuel to the family of Jesse, and Samuel comes up to the family of Jesse, and he first sees Jesse's firstborn and thinks, this is it. This is the dude. He is strong. He is mighty. He's handsome. Like, these are all the things that we need in a king. This is the person, and it wasn't the person. And God reminds Samuel, don't look for what people value. Look for what I value. So he goes through all of Jesse's sons, and none of them that he sees in front of him are the one. And so he says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, yeah, I have one more, the youngest, but he's out like tending the sheep, which would not have been the person that they would have thought to be the king. So Jesse's, or Samuel says, okay, send for him, bring him in. We're not going to sit down until he comes. And so they send for David, and David comes in, and he's the youngest. He's been tending the sheep, and he walks in, and God tells Samuel, that's the one. And Samuel anoints him to be the future of the people of Israel. And then later on, we know that uh, David goes and he fights Goliath, right? And again, he is not the person that you would think would fight Goliath. He was just delivering some food to his brothers on the front lines, And he goes out there with no armor, slingshot, Goliath, victory. Every step of the way, God provides and directs David's path. God calls David and shows him where to go. All the way through into his leadership, David doesn't seem like the person that you would think would be the one. So when he is referring to God as his shepherd, the one who directs him, provides him rest, gives him refreshment, he is speaking very firsthand. He knows what it means to rely solely on God's direction. And he keeps going. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the second thing that a shepherd provides for their sheep is protection, right? Sheep are not the smartest animals. They don't have a lot to fight off danger. And so a shepherd protects his sheep. And here's what's interesting about these lines is that it switches from talking about God in the third person and talking about God in the first person. It shows an intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep that only they can understand. And I was reading um, this book that Colleen gave me this last week about what it means to read this psalm from the perspective of a shepherd, like an actual person who takes care of sheep, because, spoiler alert, I have never taken care of a sheep. So I'm reading this book, and they talked about how in the cycle of life when you're caring for sheep, there is times that you are at home, on your home base, that's what you call a pasture, right? Um, 
And then there are times when you have to go to a higher ground that is better pasture for the sheep because of, you know, seasons. And so the uh, shepherd will lead his flock all the way like through this like dangerous kind of almost like the wilderness, like a portage, and will lead his flock to a higher ground so that they will have better grass, better um, protection, just a better life up in this different area. And that journey is just the shepherd and the sheep. No one else is around. And that requires the sheep to know the shepherd. It requires the sheep to listen and respond to the voice of the shepherd. This intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep is really key in that journey. And so when we talk about walking through the darkest valleys, fearing no evil because the shepherd is with you, that is what we're talking about. This intimate relationship where you know the shepherd's voice. Jesus talked about this in John when he calls himself the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep will know my voice. What does it mean for us to know God's voice? Even though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. David knows that there are dark valleys. The psalm that comes right before this is Psalm 22, which starts off with those famous words that Jesus says on the cross, why have you forsaken me? David has seen dark times. He has not always had the easiest ride. He knows what it means to be in the darkest valleys of the soul. And yet he says, I will fear no evil. He doesn't say that evil is not present. He doesn't say that his life is perfect. He says, even in the darkest valley, even when there are things in my life that I cannot explain, I will not fear because I know that God is with me. Understanding what it means to have the presence of the shepherd means that we understand that there is not the absence of fear. It is not the absence of evil. It means that even though there's evil, we have the shepherd. The presence of the shepherd is what drives the fear away, not the absence of evil. The protection that we get from God's presence is what drives us through. And he continues on in the psalm, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David ends this psalm like he ends a lot of his psalms with the promises that God has given him. The promises of goodness and love of a cup overflowing of a table prepared before him in the presence of his enemies. One of the commentaries I read this week said, pointed out that that could mean one of two things, both of which David would have experienced. It could mean that even in the presence of his enemies, God takes the time to set a table and prepare a feast for David, even in the midst of battle. But it also could mean that after a victory, in the presence of his enemies, God prepares a feast for him. Both of those things have been true in David's life. He has been full of victory and he has been in the midst of battle and he knows that either way, God prepares this feast for him. And customary to the time, God anoints his head with oil and his cup is overflowing. He is given the good things even in the presence of enemies. 
And he ends with this, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. When I was in seminary, I took a Hebrew class and we were supposed to do a word study. And I did a word study for this word that is usually translated as follow or pursue is another prayer that it's been um, translated. But the, the actual like Hebrew word is most usually translated as persecuted. And other places in the Old Testament where it's used, it's used to talk about being persecuted by enemies. And I thought about that, and I remember standing up in front of my Hebrew class and being like, I don't get Hebrew. Like, how can you use the same word for something that's so awful being persecuted for who you are, for your belief system, how can you use that word for God's goodness? And I remember my Hebrew teacher was like, well, maybe it means that God's goodness is better than the awful thing. That God's goodness is more better at pursuing us than the bad thing that when come up against actual persecution where you're being um, treated differently for who you are and what you believe in, maybe it means that God's love following you is more successful than the other thing. That's the promise that David ends with and that he will dwell in the the house of the Lord forever. This two thing that we will both have God's goodness following us in our days on earth And after our days on earth, we will be in the house of the Lord forever. That's the promise that we now know is fulfilled in Christ. But that David lived his whole life knowing that through all of these things that he has gone through, God's goodness and loving kindness is more than the evil in the world around him. This psalm is comforting for a lot of reasons. But the biggest one for me is the reminder that the presence of God doesn't mean that there won't be evil or hardship, but that we all know that because of his victory over death, Christ will win the battle every time. That's why we read this psalm. Because we know that no matter what is happening in our world, Christ will win the battle every time. That first day in the Boundary Waters was the worst. And I'm going to be really honest. The second day was worse. (laughs) The second day, we portaged another seven times, another mile and a half. But what we found is that by the third day, we figured out how to do it as a team. We figured out what it meant to encourage one another what it meant to get through that portage when it's just you and the canoe and the wilderness and God. Because you're not alone under the canoe. God is there. We learned perseverance just as Paul says in his letter to the Romans. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. We only get to the hope through the perseverance of the sufferings. This psalm was written by a man who knew that all too well. David had some ups and downs. He did not do everything perfectly. We can't pretend that he was the perfect king. 
but he was a man after God's own heart. He was the person who wrote this psalm and reminds us who was actually in charge. The Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want. When I find myself faced with the harsh realities of the world around me, when I find myself faced with abuse of power, with hard things that are interacting with the people that I love so deeply, when I see injustice, when I see just regular, plain suffering, I know that my God is with me. The last thing that I want to leave you with is that I read this commentary of a Mennonite priest who described this passage, um, he described reading this passage at the bedside of a congregation member as they were preparing to say goodbye to a family member. And he reflected back on the time and he said, when I pray Psalm 23, the you I address is to God, but I hope that others overhear it, that they will hear in the you an invitation to be with me. This psalm is a personal psalm between us and God. It is a personal um, relationship that we have with our Savior to know that he is walking with us in the dark valleys. But our hope is that when we live this way, when we live surrendered to Jesus, that other people will see an invitation in that. Because the world is full of suffering, And we all need a shepherd. And so we may pray this individually between us and God, but it has effect on the people that are around us. At least that is our hope. Our hope is that when we let these things dig deep into our hearts, that it changes the way that other people see God because of the way that we're living that out. May we be a people that pray the you of Psalm 23 so that others can hear it. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for your creation. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us. God, as we sing these words of speak, O Lord, will you speak to us? May this prayer be a prayer that would change our hearts and our minds and our lives for you. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.